0: Hi, We the People friends. This episode, a wonderful conversation about how the ancient Greeks and Romans influenced the American founders, originally ran on Live at the National Constitution Center. That's our companion podcast, which features the audio feeds from all of our great National Constitution Center panels. So please check out Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can check out the videos of these panels at constitutioncenter.org. And we'll be back with a new episode of We the People in the New Year. Have a wonderful holiday. Happy New Year. And onto the show.
1: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Philosophers like Homer, Aristotle, and Cicero greatly influenced the American founders and some of their most crucial decisions at the birth of our country and beyond. Last week, NCC President Jeffrey Rosen was joined by a panel of experts to discuss the influence of the ancient Greeks and Romans on early America. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the President and CEO of this wonderful institution. And we're going to begin, as always, by reciting together our mission statements to inspire ourselves for the learning ahead. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a non-partisan basis. Friends, I have been looking forward to this program for many months. The topic is so centrally important to our understanding of our founding principles and the American idea and we're honored to have not only three of America's greatest scholars on this topic, but the three great American scholars on this topic. So, What isn't known about what the founders learned from the Greeks and Romans, um, if these guys don't know it, then no one does. And I'm so excited to introduce them to you now, and to have a discussion with you and to learn from them. Carl Richard is professor of history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. He's the author of many books on intellectual history, and, and I've read them and I have them by my side. I won't hold them up, but I, I want, I want, I'm recommending them to you uh, right now. The Founders and the Classics, Greece, Rome, and the American Enlightenment, Greeks and Romans Bearing Gifts, How the Ancients Inspired the Founding Fathers, uh, 12 Greeks and Romans Who Changed the World, and most recently, and just as illuminating, and I've just finished it on Kindle, The Founders and the Bible. Thomas Ricks is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a number one New York Times best-selling author. He has covered the US military for the Washington Post, he was on the staff of the Wall Street Journal and is the author of several pathbreaking books including most recently the one which we're so excited to discuss today, First Principles: What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How That Shaped Our Country, and Caroline Winter is the Williams-Robertson Co-Professor of History and American Studies and the chair of the Department of History at Stanford. She's the author of several books on the history of ideas, including three that are centrally relevant to today's discussion, The Culture of Classicism, Ancient Greece and Rome and American Intellectual Life, The Mirror of Antiquity, American Women and the Classical Tradition, 1750-1900, to 1900, and most recently, American Enlightenment's Pursuing Happiness in the Age of Reason, Thank you so much for joining and welcome Carl Richard, Thomas Ricks, and Carolyn Winterer. Well, let us begin with the central question, what did the founders learn from the Greeks and Romans? Thomas Ricks, you describe how it was after the 2016 election that you decided to read the classical sources that inspired the founders. You teach us so much about what they learned, and much of it uh, comes down to Virtue, you have Thomas Jefferson quoting Epicurus, happiness, the aim of life, virtue, the foundation of happiness. Uh, Tell us what the founders learned from the ancient Greeks and Romans about the connection between public happiness and public virtue, and how did different philosophers influence different
2: founders in different ways? Honestly, I defer on most of that question to the two other panelists. Um, I've got to say that their books were major illuminating works for me as I went through my, my research. These, they, they did the foundational, uh, work along with Meyer Reinold and a couple of other people. Uh, but I learned so much from them. It really is just an honor to be on the same platform with them. And I probably would be happy just to sit and listen to them. But, um, What struck me as I began my research, I I actually began by taking down Aristotle's politics off the shelf on the day after the 2016 presidential election. I had been taught in college, when you don't understand something, go back to the basis, go back to first principles. And I did, and that led me through a lot of Greek uh, philosophy and Greek history, literature, and into Roman history and literature. And what I took away with for most was the political vocabulary of the revolutionary generation comes out of the ancient world and especially the decline of the Roman Republic. To them, the decline of the Roman Republic with Cato, with Cicero, uh, with Julius Caesar ultimately seizing power, uh, all this had the urgency of front page news to them. Uh, Virtue is the other bright thread that runs through this whole era. Uh, the question of whether public virtue or what we, what they called virtue, what we call public spiritedness or public mindedness, uh, whether a nation could get by on that. And I think by the end of the revolution, it was pretty clear to George Washington and to many others that that was insufficient. But the rhetoric of virtue continues on for a few decades until it basically is given lip service in the 19th century. Caroline,
0: uh, as Thomas said, we're, you, you've written so definitively about this, so I'm, I'll ask you the, the same question. W- what did the founders learn from the Greeks and Romans about public virtue? And Then you, you just have the stunning book on what American women who were classically educated from Abigail Adams and Mercy Otis Warren to Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American poet, learned from the same classical sources. So Give us a sense of what the founding fathers and mothers, men and women, learned from the Greeks and Romans about public virtue.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, so, the, you know, the first thing to remember as we go back uh, to look at what the founding generation wanted from the Greeks and Romans is, you know, we have to remember how extraordinary what they were trying to do was. You know, there had been about 2,000 years of monarchies and empires that subsisted on a totally different conception of what it was that human beings owed to the polity. They owed obedience, they owed honor, and they owed deference. And the American Revolution was a fundamental overturning of that. It was the first long-lasting, although they didn't know it was going to be long-lasting, only we know that, but they hoped it would be the first long-lasting kingless republic. For the last two thousand years, so this was, you know, a really bold and, in some senses, foolhardy experiment, and it required them to completely overturn two thousand years of thinking about political science. And that's actually a term that they invented in the Federalist Papers. The term "science of politics" appears there because they think that they're kind of doing an autopsy, uh, a, a scientific study of the failures of the last 2,000 years of monarchy. So when they look to the founders to think about what it means to have a republic, they find this idea of civic virtue. And for them, that is the very foundation of Republican government that distinguishes it from the kind of honor hierarchy uh, mentality on which monarchies rest. So when they say virtue, um, they don't mean what the Victorians later would mean and what we tend to mean, which is kind of sexual virtue or uh, personal restraint. They had a totally public sense of the interconnectedness between private behavior, um, self-abnegation in uh, pursuit of public ends, that and 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 the good of the republic. So I think that, you know, for our listeners today, the place in which we see that overlap most clearly between private virtue and public virtue is in the Declaration of Independence, where Jefferson says, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And we tend to read that and think, well, he must mean private happiness, like i'm gonna buy a bmw and i'm gonna be really happy but in fact there's total slippage in his use of the word happiness between private happiness and public happiness so he does mean life liberty and the pursuit of public happiness which means um kind of suppressing your own individual desires in order to pursue public virtue which Kennedy reiterates in the 1960s when he says, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You know, that sticks in our minds today because it's resurrecting this, the founders classical ideals of the Romans and the Greeks and that slippage between private virtue and public virtue.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, Carl, uh, in your book *The Founders and the Classics*, you have a remarkable uh, ch- chapter, or part of a chapter, on the intellectual sources of Jefferson's understanding of the pursuit of happiness. And you begin with Aristotle's notion of eudaimonia, and you take it through uh, the Stoics and Cicero, and then you introduce Epicurus. It's, it's a it's a complicated and fascinating story. Can you disaggregate? Um, uh, exactly how Jefferson understood the pursuit of happiness and precisely how those Greek and Roman philosophers influenced him?
3: Yes, I mean, there, there, there are different things going on here. In, in the case of Jefferson, he was so philosophically inclined. Not all of the founders were, but he was. Uh, and so he studied the, the, the Greek philosophers, especially, and the Roman ones as well. And he was especially fond of Epicurus. Uh, but it's a complicated thing because there's a part of Jefferson that's Epicurean. There's a part of, especially in ethics, where he's Christian. And so there are many different influences that that went into that. And you know, he's such a complicated person. Uh, in terms of the other founders, one of the things I wanted to add, uh, so that I mean, maybe it's so obvious that we might look over it, but is the education of the founders. This was something they started as young children, most of them, the study of Greek and Latin. We say Greek and Latin, but it was mostly Latin. And so from childhood years, they're very much impacted by these examples, especially Roman examples of civic virtue. And they come to associate themselves. I mean, these are their childhood heroes, the way someone, a child today might worship an actor, uh, a, a sports figure or someone like that. And so we find even with Washington, who is not classically educated, that he associates himself and other people associate him with Cincinnati, this person who defended the republic and then completely uh, resigned his dictatorial power. And uh, uh, Washington more and more comes to associate himself with that image and to try to advance that image, to, to reinforce it. And in the case of John Adams, Uh, Cicero. Uh, You know, he was a law student. Cicero was a lawyer. Uh, He Adams, along with Patrick Henry, was uh, one of the greatest orators of the Revolution, and he admired Cicero's writings of the orator, uh, his speeches, and so on. He studied he memorized them. He, He, you know, he had, once there was a family argument when he was a young man, and he got all upset, and he said, I quitted the room and took up my Cicero, and he started reading the speeches out loud comfort himself. I mean, this is how closely attached they were to these figures. Uh, and in the case of Cicero, Adams uh, 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 seeing himself as a latter-day Cicero grows more and more uh, powerful as time goes on. And he writes his self-pitying letter to his friend, Benjamin Rush, uh, after he's lost a re-election bid a few years later, saying, I'm just like Cicero. You know, all the parties rejected Cicero and now all the parties are rejecting me, and for the same reason, because we're virtuous. we you know we we don't uh, we don't bend to the faction, we don't bend to the party, we don't promote the party above the common interest, and that's why we're persecuted.
0: Thank you for that, and thank you for
3: emphasizing how
0: Cincinnatus for Washington, uh, Cicero for Adams, uh, Epicurus for Jefferson. Each of the founders had different inspirations. Um, Thomas, you know you know there's so many vivid stories in your books and I uh, uh, give us a sense of particular moments when the the founding fathers that you write about turned to the classics to influence their own conduct you you, you have Washington famously containing his temper um was he thinking of Cato when he did that uh, were, were there moments in Adams or Jefferson's public life when they drew on their classical education to moderate their own? passions and to try to be virtuous.
2: Uh, share some of your favorite stories. Washington uh, is so striking because as was said, he's essentially an uneducated man. One of my favorite uh, moments is when Thomas Pickering and John Adams have drinks one night in Philadelphia to discuss, uh, and they discuss whether George Washington actually is illiterate. And John Adams said, no, he wrote great letters during the war uh, when he was leading the army. Those, those were very well written letters. And Pickering kind of laughs and says, No, they were written by that kid, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Washington can, can barely write. But Washington, like a lot of bright people who do not have a formal education, I think was very good at learning through experience, through observation and reflection about experience. And I think, really, by the revolution, becomes a genuine critical thinker. Uh, so while Early on, he's trying to imitate Cato, the stoic politician, with the qualities of prudence, frugality, uh, wisdom, um, caution. Uh, That's partly because he does have this volcanic temper, and he knows he needs to learn how to contain it. And so I think Cato becomes his model. But then he has a second model foisted on him, which is that of the Roman general Fabius, who defeats Hannibal, through indirection, through maneuver, through not giving battle, this is not a natural thing for Washington as a general to do. He begins the war as a fairly conventional, offensive thinker, pretty much like his British opponents, but through force of circumstance, he adopts a Fabian approach to war. He tries to keep his army together, but he tries to avoid major battles, except when he has to give battle for a political reason or another reason Battles around Philadelphia really had to show he was willing to try to protect the American capital, at Germantown and so on. Uh, Adams, uh, as Professor Richard said, so much models himself on Cicero. Trollope, who was a um, good historian as well as a novelist, Trollope has a comment about Cicero that he loved to talk about his nation and he loved to talk about himself and he did both equally uh, as much. I think Cicero, Cicero and Adams uh, go together like that. Uh, Adams, I think, has kind of had a bit of a bubble in reputation, partly because of the David McCullough biography, followed by the HBO series. Uh, he's not this little cuddly teddy bear that Paul Giamatti depicted. Uh, I mean, I'm really struck at one moment uh, in a letter. Uh, Adams ex- exults about the fact that a newspaper editor who has been critical of him. Is killed along with his family in a house fire, and Adams says basically that's exactly what he deserved. Uh, the tremendous vanity of the man—he's—he's he's the Woody Allen uh, of the Revolutionary Generation, constantly wearing his feelings on his sleeve. And then uh, you mentioned Jefferson, and I'm not sure that Jefferson was moderated by Epicurus as much as given permission by Epicurus. I think. Of of all the founders, what strikes me about Jefferson is you have the greatest gap between his words and his actions. He talks good game about slavery, especially when he's in Paris. When he comes home, he never does anything about it. Uh, And Epicurus gives him a kind of romantic, um, like the romanticism, uh, permission to privilege the heart above the head, to put passion and feelings above reason. Uh, Epicurus also allows him to keep his distance uh, emotional distance uh, that part of the, the way to, to to achieve happiness is to avoid pain and I think this is actually one reason Jefferson spent so much of his life uh, pursuing married women because he had all the prospects of a fun romance without any risk of becoming permanently entangled and dealing with Jefferson reminds me a little bit of dealing with the giant marshmallow man in uh, Ghostbusters, the marshmallow giant. You can never really get your arms around him, and you can he always seems to recede when you reach out to him. He's the most elusive uh, of the founders, I think. Madison, finally, of the four people I focus on in my book, I don't see any one Greek or Roman that really seems to inspire Madison. And at the same time, Madison strikes me also as one of the first nationalists, along with Hamilton. The whole pattern of Madison's life is he's not a man of the state. He doesn't go to William and Mary, even though he's a Virginian. He goes off to Princeton, for him, the North, and the first college in America, explicitly founded as a national institution, seeking to draw students from the entire seaboard and even from overseas. The first college, actually, to have a president who came from overseas, John Weatherspoon, a Scott. A Scot- and a political radical who himself becomes uh, one of the only clergymen to be much involved in the politics of the revolution. Uh, so four very different uh, models, four different approaches, I just want to add one last thing which is one thing that really struck me the more research I did was how different the their ancient world was from our ancient world. Our Roman Greece are not their Roman Greece. Uh, to them the best uh, dramatist of the ancient world was terence the roman comic playwright that nobody reads these days i found unreadable Uh, jefferson loved the greeks greek literature but you don't see a whole aside from a couple uh, um, of examples uh, like xenophon you don't really see a whole lot of greek dramatist in literature in their works they're really much more focused on rome Uh, so it's just a different rome and greece and part of the fun for me was learning what their Roman in Greece was as compared to ours.
0: Thank you so much for all of that. Uh, just a completely uh, illuminating uh, discussion. I completely agree with you about Terence. I saw him quoted in Jefferson's commonplace book and tried to read his comedies, and they're they are indeed unreadable. Uh, but Jefferson had some. Uh, he had he had fortitude in his his reading tastes. Um, Carolyn Winter, first of all, we have some readings from Terry Wildman who says, Hi, Professor Winter, just finished the American Enlightenment class with Pace University, loved it. Thank you for your work, so important at this time. Uh, I want to ask you more about the reason passion distinction. Abigail Adams writing to her son John Quincy Adams says, ungoverned passions have been aptly compared to the boisterous ocean, which is known to produce the most terrible effect Passions are the element of life, she says, quoting Pope's uh, uh, essay on reason. But elements which are subject to the control of reason, and then who will ever candidly examine themselves and find some degree of passion, peevishness, or obstinacy in their natural te- tempers. She's exhorting Quincy Adams to use his reason to govern his passions to be temperate, moderate, prudent in, in in the classical way. And Then John Quincy Adams takes her up on it and he's always in his diaries struggling with the same reason, passion, distinction. Was this something that the founders, and I'll ask you about Abigail Adams and Merciotis Warren and Phyllis Wheatley in particular because you write about them so well. Did they self-consciously struggle with this in their moral lives and attempt to basically engage in emotional self-governance and to tame their unreasonable passions to achieve tranquility and prudence?
1: Um. Well, so the short answer to your question is yes, they did. <laughs> so, so, you know, wow. the, yeah, we're done. <laughs> off, off to Carl. Um, the, you know, the 18th century, the age of the Enlightenment, is the first time when, uh, you know, the term human nature is invented in the 18th century. And they're trying to, un, as is Homo sapiens. Uh, and, and people are really trying to understand the great question of what makes us human. And um, they can't decide they're torn uh, between uh, humans as these calculating machines, the, the rational um, people of the enlightenment. And yet they sense that, that also driving us are these passions uh, that are uh, on the one hand inspiring because they make us you know, take up arms in defense of uh, things that we really feel uh, passionate about, but they also frighten us because they lead to exactly what Tom was talking about, which is these frightening outbursts of anger. And and actually, uh, you know, John Adams is so afraid of his own anger that he imagines that the history of Greece is a, a French boudoir made, this is when he comes back from France, a French boudoir with, with um, mirrors on all sides and also on the ceiling, he says. I mean, I'm just like trying to, to oh. kind of picture John Adams in this crazy <laughs> mirror on all sides. But he says specifically, and he, he tells this to his four kids, when you are angry, you should look at yourself in that mirror and you will see your face so disfigured by anger that you will uh, moderate your passions as a result. So this is this really extraordinary uh, image and, and, the use of the history of Greece for an entirely non-political purpose, right? A really, um, a purpose of self-government. So, so one of the things to go to Phyllis Wheatley, who writes, uh, who is, uh, just in case your listeners don't know, um, she's a slave in Massachusetts, her master John Wheatley teaches her Greek and Latin, and she writes this kind of Latinate poetry that drives Jefferson crazy. He singles it out for ridicule in the notes on the state of Virginia in Query 14. But slavery frightens the founders because it excites their passions. And um, they wrestle with the results of a post-emancipation society. They begin to imagine what would it be like if we freed all of these slaves that excite our passions so much, that, that engender fear in us, as Jefferson says, you know, we have the wolf by the ears. Um, and so someone like Phyllis Wheatley is providing this opposite model of a slave who is utterly in control of her passions, um, even though for white masters, slavery and slaves themselves excite uh, all of these uh, passions that frighten them. And I'll just sort of finish off here um, with Abigail Adams. So classicism provides for American women of this era the first political language. So it's not until the 20th century that we get you know, the, the definitive women having the vote in federal elections kind of political participation. But women like abigail adams who are not allowed to publish you know this is where we are in the 18th century we have to really imagine a very different world women elite women are learning to read and write but they're not allowed to publish their writing so they have a totally private civic identity and what classicism does for them through this figure that they call the roman matron which is you know pick your favorite classical female of virtue so they're not talking Cleopatra, you know, none of that stuff. They're talking virtuous, uh, virtuous women, um, the, the wife of Brutus, for example, named Portia. This allows them to say, okay, it's true that we can't vote because we are women. We are overly passionate, so we shouldn't have that kind of civic participation. But we can educate our sons for service to the republic and this is the grounds on which we will claim our civic identity. So it's through that identity that someone like Abigail Adams teaches all four of the Adams children, especially John Quincy, uh, to to learn Greek and Latin, uh, to learn Greek and Roman history in order to become future leaders of the Republic. Uh, now, this just as you know, Tom was talking about how uncuddly John Adams was. His wife is also non-cuddly. Uh, <laughs> one of one of my colleagues said, you know, it would have been really tough to have Abigail Adams as your mom, and and I agree. the The figure of the Roman matron is is a pretty um, kind of helicopter parent figure, but it is one that a lot of women begin to claim at this time, including, you know, Abigail signs a bunch of letters to John Adams as Portia, uh, as I always tell my students, not the car, the wife of Brutus. So she signs <laughs> as Portia, the wife of Brutus in order to claim the civic identity. And that's how she sort of says to herself, I'm going to educate my kids for self-government. So when you know when we think just one more thing before I hand it off to Carl, when we think of the American Revolution, we think of it as a revolution of self-government, that it is Americans governing themselves rather than being governed by the British. But it is also a revolution in the government of the self. In in and to to kind of finish with your your opening question, to govern the reason and the passions at the same time into this beautiful new um, meld of the enlightened person who can deploy Greek and Roman history for the benefit of the new republic.
0: Wow. So beautifully stated. That crucial distinction between self-government for politics and the government of the self. Those amazing stories about Abigail Adams who did indeed sign her very stern letters, uh, uh, Portia, and that story about the boudoir is one that I know we will all remember. Carl, I I have so much to ask you and I think I'm going to ask you because uh, several of our friends in the Q&A do, about the relation between the Greek and Roman influence and the influence of the Bible on the founders conception of virtue. You've just written your new book on the founders and the Bible and you describe how Uh, Aquinas and Augustine filtered the classical virtues into the Christian ones and it's a big topic, of course, which you treat so definitively. The founders had different relationships with the Christian Bible and different degrees of uh, doctrinal observance. But talk about the similarities, the consonances that came from the classical Greeks and Romans through the uh, Aquinas and Augustine and and then up to the 17th century thinkers like Locke and, and Hutchison and the Scots who were so central to influencing the founders.
3: Well, there's a, there's a love-hate relationship between the Christian tradition and the classical tradition. that goes all the way back to the beginning, uh, really. And throughout every generation, almost, there's been this, this struggle of Christians. Should we be studying the classics or are they, you know, these pagan things that we should stay away from? And in uh, m- most of the generations, the decision was yes, we should study them, even though there are problems with them. There, some of them are a bit too lascivious for our for our taste. Some of them, uh, you know, some of the stories of the gods and goddesses of polytheism we don't really care for. Uh, but there's a lot of wisdom there, and there's also a lot of correspondence. There, I mean, there's some differences, but there are a lot of there's a lot of correspondence. Between classical virtue and Christian virtue, you know, we talked about uh, self discipline self restraint, obviously that's something that would fit with both ethical systems. Uh, But I find it interesting that that even Jefferson, who was, who was probably more uh, attached to classical philosophy than than any of the others that when it came to ethics, he even he said Christianity is superior to the classical tradition. He was very emphatic about that. In fact, when he when he called himself a Christian, I think what he really meant was I'm a follower of Christian ethics. You know, he, he had some real problems with biblical doctrines, uh, but he was very much a believer in the ethics of Christianity. And what are the differences? Well, I think uh, one of the main differences is the, the doctrine of humility. Humility is not a classical virtue. And you go back and read uh, the Odyssey, Odysseus is always boasting about his prowess and so on. Achilles and the Iliad boasting. Uh, uh, you know, Cicero was charged with vanity because he was constantly boasting. And it was funny that uh, Adams tried to defend Cicero on the charge of vanity when, when no Roman would have even thought it was a fault. You know, that's the Christian side of Adams trying to defend Cicero from the charge of vanity. So humility is is a, a big Christian virtue that is not part of the classical tradition, and uh, benevolence. You know, the, uh, classical uh, virtue was about not harming yourself and not harming others, uh, but Christianity went beyond that and said you actually have a duty to uh, to help others. Yeah, it's a positive thing, positive benevolence. And Jefferson has this famous. Uh, Debate between his head and his heart. In a letter to one of those married women, he was after Tom. Uh, uh, he he. I don't know why in that letter. I guess because he was having this relationship with this woman. But but he includes this this interesting uh, dialogue between his head and his heart. And it turns out that his head is Epicurean and his heart is Christian. And it's the heart who actually wins the argument. The Christian heart wins, uh, saying. You know, basically, uh, if I listened to you, head, I would never do anything benevolent. I would never help anybody. And so the the Christian heart wins the argument. Thank you for all
0: of that, uh, and that helps answer a question from our Q and A box about addressing the Jefferson Bible. You stress that he was Christian in his ethics. He did indeed say that Christianity was uh, superior to the classics when it came to ethics. And in that letter, I recall. Being uh, distressed to find he also said that uh, Christianity was superior to the Jewish morals, which were kind of uh, woefully inadequate in not accounting for benevolence, which seemed uh, unfair to me given the injunction to love thy neighbor, as the New Testament says, comes in fact from the Old. Uh, but thanks very much for stressing that uh, for him, uh, Christianity was the most perfect source of ethics, and as he, he considered Jesus to be one of the greatest of moral exemplars, as you say. Uh, but he approaches the Bible with the scissors. Well, let's we'll, we'll just say one more word about what, because because one of our attendees asked, "What about the Jefferson Bible?" Uh, Bobby Dunham asks, "What what did Jefferson do to the Bible, and what was the Jefferson Bible?"
2: Uh, I'll, I'll defer
0: to Carl on this. Uh, what was the question again? Oh, oh, just uh, just a, br- a brief. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll just uh, sum it up. But but Bobby Dunham was asking what was the Jefferson Bible, and as, as Tom said, it's an attempt to take a scissors to the actual Bible, leave out the parts that Jefferson considered mystic or, or based on uh, superstition, and to focus on the ethics, uh, which is what, yeah.
3: Yes, he, uh, what he, basically what he cut out was was actually most of the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament, because he said it's not rational for God to choose one people over others, You know, which is the, the Hebrews, uh, and he didn't like some of the eye for an eye Stuff and all that. So he threw out the whole Old Testament. He left him with just the New Testament and, and from the New Testament he extracted the miracles, uh, which, which I find very interesting because he does, he's not a complete deist in the sense that the word is often used, which is to mean that God does not intervene in, in the universe. He, he often wrote that God was behind the American Revolution. But I think the difference is he did not believe God ever worked through miracles. It was always natural causes, and so he didn't like the miracles. So he took the miracles out, and uh, he and then of course a lot of uh, Paul's letters because Paul is is uh, using this theology where Jesus is God. You know he's the Trinity. Jefferson did not believe in the Trinity. Thought it was irrational. How could three be one and one three? Uh, and so, really, what he's left with, and what he actually is sometimes called it, was the the life and teachings of Jesus. So that's what he distilled it to: uh, narrative of, of Jesus's life and his ethical teachings. Thank you, thank you very much for that,
0: Tom. Uh, first of all, Michael Yell says, "Wow, this is incredible," and he wants he says if there's a Q and A, he would like Thomas Ricks to tell the story of Hamilton's challenge to Morris about greeting Washington. It's great. And then Thomas Michael asks you to and the other scholars to address the effects of the Enlightenment on the founders. And that picks up on a question from Dan Berger, who asks whether the American model of self-government and democracy directly or originate in classical or 18th-century Enlightenment thought. So, Tom, if you could tell that Hamilton story and then give us a sense of the distinction between the Enlightenment and the classical influences.
2: Well, with Professor Winterer on the screen, there is no way I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to leave it entirely to her. Um, the story of Gouverneur Morris, as I understand his first name is pronounced, uh, is he and Hamilton were having an argument one day about Washington. They talked about Washington a lot. Uh, and uh, Hamilton said he's not really close to anybody. Uh, he doesn't like physical closeness uh, or emotional closeness to people. And Morris said, no, no, I, I think, you know, He could be as social as anybody else. I've I've had a few drinks with him and had a grand time. And Hamilton, um, always a manipulator and a conspirator and a stirrer up of things, Hamilton says, okay, tell you what. Next time you see Washington, go up and clap him on the shoulder in greeting and see what happens. And uh, Morris says, okay. And Hamilton says, if you do that, I will buy a dinner for you and me and 10 people you pick, filled with good wines. So Morris does it. He sees Washington, walks up, claps him on the shoulder. Washington lifts the hand off his shoulder, steps back, and stares at Morris for a full minute, and then leaves the room. And Morris says at that wine-filled dinner with Hamilton, this is not worth it. I will never do that again, even for another dinner. I think it shows the way in which Washington was so focused on his presentation, the presentation of his self. Nathaniel Hawthorne famously wrote a note to himself about how Washington seems to have been born uh, with a powdered wig on and making a bow to the world. And that goes to the point that Washington spent a life creating this public figure, this statue, that he was modeling on Cato and other Romans. By the way, the play Cato written by Joseph Addison was very popular in the 18th century and supposedly was George Washington's favorite play. And there is evidence, not definitive, that Washington had it put on one night at Valley Forge. I do wanna just make one note before I turn the mic over to Caroline, which is um, we do need to talk about slavery a bit at some point, and especially about ancient slavery versus American slavery.
0: Professor Winterer? Well, I'll thank you for introducing that important topic. And uh, as you uh, generously and rightly did, I, I will ask uh, Carolyn to answer this question about the influence of the Enlightenment in particular on the founding and how it was distinctive from that uh, of, of the classics. And then the question uh, Tom introduces is, of course, crucial um, how does slavery fit into both the Enlightenment and the classical tradition?
1: Yeah, uh, this you know, these are wonderful questions. And this is where we feel like we're sort of moving huge conceptual blocks around because we're at a high level of ab- abstraction. So I'll try to bring it down to kind of uh, more manageable uh, pieces to digest. But basically, um, the way to think about classicism and the Enlightenment in the 18th century is that they're mutually enabling discourses. In order to be enlightened, uh, you have to study the classics, and in order to study the classics properly, you have to be enlightened. So what does it mean to be enlightened in the 18th century? Now, today we use enlightened as just a, an all-purpose compliment to people. You are enlightened. But they actually had a really specific definition in the 18th century, which is helpful. The first is that um, everything is getting better all the time. They invent the modern idea of progress, that today is so widely believed in American society that if you were to stand in the middle of the street and say progress is a myth that was invented in the 18th century, people would actually become angry at you. But I'm here to tell you progress was a myth invented in the 18th century. It (laughs) it displaced, and don't get mad at the Constitution Center, get mad at me. It displaced two other models of, of history. One is the Christian declension model of the fall from Eden in which we are all sinful human beings because of Adam and especially Eve. And the second one was the classical model of cyclical history, that there's never anything new. We always just repeat these typologies. And the 18th century is the first time in human history that large numbers of people emancipate themselves from those two schemes. And they say, actually, no, the plot of human history is to always get better all the time. And furthermore, the second thing Is that it is human reason that is going to help us to get better all the time it's not that God has determined our sinful nature and set everything up from the get go. uh, Before he even created the earth it's that we as human beings have been given reason and we can use that to create a better society for everybody, and that means learning about the other people who had a lot of reason, the Greeks and Romans. Therefore we need to learn about the Greeks and Romans. So you can see how they're kind of mutually constituted discourses, which is why Carl and I spend a lot of time in all of our books sort of smooshing those two concepts together. But then this raises this question of slavery. So one in every four people living in the new United States was enslaved. There were uh, approximately 1 million slaves in 1790 There would be 4 million slaves on the eve of the American Civil War. Now, not all of our population numbers are perfect for the 18th century, so you could dispute that first number around the edges. Some people would say 700,000, some people would say a little more. But suffice it to say that they were living in what the classical scholar Moses Finley has called a slave society, which is that slavery is the major labor force Um, in large portions of the country, which it was in the American South. Now, um, in order to understand what it meant to be a slave society, the founders turned to the other two slave societies in human history, the Greeks and the Romans. And there they found Aristotle who said, some people are naturally slaves. And in order to free ourselves as, as slave owners, For good and wise government, we have to free ourselves from toil and drudgery, and therefore slave societies create these beautiful masterclasses of great thinkers. As the pro-slavery argument gets going in the antebellum South, they seize on Aristotle as the great defender of pro-slavery politics even as a counter trend is emerging in the north by the antebellum period which is around 1820 to 1860 in which they begin to turn to greece and athens as the first free civilizations in human history to say this is the root of western democracy this is the root of human history so you have people like george bancroft in the north saying this even as southern white slaveholders are saying Aristotle tells us that slavery is good. So uh, one of the fascinating things that happens with the classical tradition by the pre-Civil War era is that you know, it gets recruited for a wholly new cause in U.S. history, which is as um, a kind of battering rams in the great national struggle over slavery. Um, So Just as the Romans were recruited to defend what it meant to be a good Republic in 1776, the Greeks are used as the measure for what makes a good democracy uh, in the antebellum period.
0: Fascinating uh, and masterful. Summary of those important concepts of, of how the Enlightenment filtered the Greeks and Romans and how both sides used the Greek and Roman tradition for and against slavery. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Carl, um, you uh, also address the slavery question, maybe give us some specific examples of people invoking the classical heritage to oppose slavery. Uh, and Then tell us, how did it all work out? How, How did the framers think that the people were doing in mastering their passions and achieving self-governance and how did they think that the um, the public officials were doing in achieving classical virtue? In other words, did they think did, did the system operate as they hoped or were they judging it uh, and finding that it fell short of the classical models?
3: Well on the question of slavery, uh, it's interesting because you go back to Aristotle, he's not talking about races. he's saying some people are superior to others they were intellectually superior and therefore perhaps, They should be masters, and the others should be slaves. But it's not a racial thing at all. And, of course, modern slavery was racial. And uh, Jefferson, in Notes on the State of Virginia, uh, that's when he attacks Phyllis Wheatley and others, Uh, he's trying to prove that whites are intellectually superior to blacks. But the interesting thing is that uh, even then, he doesn't think that that really um, justifies slavery. There's a famous letter where he, because he got some pushback from that, uh, from notes in the state of Virginia on that very score. A free black person wrote to him saying, you're wrong, we're not intellectually inferior. And Jefferson drew back and he said, well, it was only a hypothesis. I'm, I'm not really certain about it, but he goes on to say something very interesting. He says, even if it were true, it would not justify slavery. He said, because Isaac Newton is superior to me intellectually, doesn't mean that Isaac Newton has a right to own me. So uh, Jefferson, that you know, as Tom mentioned, has a very complex relationship with slavery. Ideologically, he's opposed to it, and he doesn't even he doesn't think that intellectual superiority, even if it's true, justifies it. On the other hand, of course, he didn't free his own slaves until his will, and then they couldn't be freed because he was in such debt that they had to be sold off to. To pay for that. Unlike Washington, by the way, who was so frugal, might even call him a penny pincher, that, uh, that his estate was in such good shape that he freed his slaves in his will and they were free. They didn't have to sell them off. Uh, so, I mean, the whole slavery thing is just very interesting. In terms of, uh, Caroline mentioned the antebellum period, the, the abolitionists then uh, I think the primary resource in attacking slavery, as far as a classical resource, was the, was natural law. And they use that very powerfully in the, in the modern concept of natural rights, which came from natural law. Uh, the, the play Antigone, which, which really addresses that whole issue of natural law, was very popular in the antebellum period, was studied in colleges and, and so on in the original Greek, because Greek became more popular Uh, uh, to study at that in the antebellum period and but what's interesting to me about that is all the greek and Roman philosophers who talked about natural law none of them were abolitionists they were not saying we should get rid of slavery in our society and yet uh what they wrote about natural law uh, could be used very powerfully by abolitionists uh, to support abolition now your other question was about uh restraint and uh, whether the founders thought that that this was happening in their own society, and in general, no. I mean, they're they're all writing about this is what we should be doing, this is how we should be. But look around, look, look. You know, Adams especially was was such a pessimist. He was constantly saying everything's going to the hell in the handbasket. Especially since I lost my reelection, and then it really started going bad.
0: Thank you for all that. Uh, thank you for uh, calling our attention to the centrality of Antigone, which C- Caroline writes about so uh, so so powerfully in, in her uh, book which influenced the founders, and mentioning Phyllis Wheatley again, and I'll uh, recommend uh, Henry Louis Gates's book on Phyllis Wheatley, which describes how the city of Boston actually held a trial about whether she could have written her own plays. John Hancock presided. They concluded that she did indeed write her own brilliant uh, verses and poems, and as you said, Racist, I think, is the only word that he insisted in the notes of Virginia that they couldn't be good poems. Um, I, I, can I know, just but, add here? Please, please, please do, and I'll just say, uh, noting the time, because we're, we're we always in, in the spirit of Seneca, uh, keep to it uh, at Constitution Center forums. This is going to be the last uh, round. So, so Tom, please do respond on that score as you will, and then I, I, I think I'll ask you for your closing thoughts about what you want to leave our wrapped audience and the the chat box is just exploding with appreciation for all of your light and uh, insights. What you want to leave our audience with about what the founders can teach us about American democracy today? Uh, Just on race-based
2: slavery, I think it's so important to emphasize the difference between ancient slavery and American race-based slavery. Uh, not only was ancient slavery not race-based, there's good arguments to be made that it was a more benign form of slavery, that uh, slaves could petition the emperor over abuse in the Roman system, and also that the children of freed slaves could hold public office, which really doesn't happen in America until about the late 1960s, that the children of freed slaves actually can, are, are holding public office. Uh, By contrast, in America, the Dred Scott decision not long before the Civil War says that black people have no rights that the white person is bound to respect. Uh, So it's a far different form of slavery. My final thought would be just what the founders would take away if they came back today. If you go back to what they wrote and thought, one thing that I keep on thinking about is the phrase the general welfare. In the Constitution, it appears twice. I think we've lost hold on the general welfare. Which the sense of the public good. Somehow we've let the market, I think, dominate our thinking much more than it did that of the founders. I think they'd be shocked to see how parts of the public good, the environment, public health, um, education, uh, the things that are supposed to be good for all people that we invest in, how much of that has been auctioned off or sold off to the highest bidder. So a corporation could damage the environment at a price. Uh, And I think especially they would be shocked uh, at corruption as the term they would use for the role of money in politics. I think they would find our system of politics today of campaign finance, the role of corporates, corporate donations, profoundly shocking, and would say that's not at all what they intended. Thank you so much for that,
0: Thomas Ricks. Carolyn Winter, your closing thoughts about what the Greeks and Romans can teach us about American democracy today?
1: Uh, Well, it's hard to talk what Tom said. uh, So three cheers for, for those sentiments. You know, I spend a lot of time with the founders and looking over their shoulder as they read the Greeks and Romans, which by the way, they did a lot in the original Greek and Latin, which is already kind of astonishing. What always strikes me is two qualities of mind that I think we need more today. One is a generosity of spirit, that I will listen to you because I am interested in what you have to tell me. And it may be different from what I think, but I'm gonna listen to you because what you are telling me is new and I can profit in the uh, non-market sense of that, but I can profit from learning that. And the second thing that they take is nuance. You know, they didn't follow what the Greeks and Romans did like machines. You know, we either do this or we do that, etc. They thought about the models and anti-models and the complexity, and they were often very unsure of what to do. And um, watching them treat these civilizations with nuance is really extraordinary uh, to behold. So I'll leave it at that.
0: Wonderful generosity of spirit and nuance are two crucial lessons to take from the Greeks and Romans, and our audience appreciates that they're all praising each of your brilliance and says it would be wonderful if the Constitution Center could host a course on this topic. And indeed, uh, Teresa Obringer, I think, will think of doing exactly that. Uh, The last word, word, Carl Richard, in this superb discussion is to you. What? Can the Greeks and Romans teach us about American democracy today?
3: Well, I, it's hard for me to top what's just been said. Um, I guess I would say that uh, I think we all need uh, models. We all need we all need anti-models. Two things to avoid. We all need to learn lessons from uh, from what we've read, and I think the founders did did a as Caroline, Caroline said, a very good job of, of, of weaving through all of that. It was it was always very well considered. It was not we reject it all or we accept it all. It was what can we learn? What can we accept? What can we reject? Given the conditions that we have today, and that's a challenge for us as well. Uh, not only in looking at the Greeks and Romans, but also in looking at the founders. You know, what can we learn from them? What what that they do that we should avoid as well, because they were not, uh, uh, as they were all uh, long thought to be gods, they were human beings just like us, and they had to deal with, with problems, and so, sometimes they didn't successfully, sometimes they were unsuccessful, and so the, their challenge is the same as our challenge, and our challenge is not just dealing with the Greeks and Romans, but dealing with the founders, and dealing with our collective past,
0: Thank you so much Thomas Ricks, Carolyn Winter and Carl Richard for an exhilarating and light-filled discussion. These founders were inspired by the Greeks and Romans injunction to all of us to use our powers of reason to explore the truth and achieve the wisdom that only Setting aside our selfish passions can achieve. And that's exactly what we've done in this wonderful discussion. Thanks to all of our thousand plus listeners who have taken an hour in the middle of their busy days because they are hungry to grow in wisdom and to reason together. And it is so moving to all of us at the Constitution Center to be able to host these meaningful discussions uh, so that all of us can grow in wisdom together. I do hope we'll convene on this topic. Uh, and I'm so grateful to our panelists. Thomas, Carolyn, and Carl, thank you again for joining. Thanks friends in the audience, and we'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.
1: This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with John Guerra and Lana Ulrich. It was engineered by David Stotz and Greg Sheckler. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.